0: Chapter 8 of The Miracles of Our Lord. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Miracles of Our Lord by George MacDonald. CHAPTER 8 The Raising of the Dead. Part 1 I linger on the threshold. How shall I enter the temple of this wonder? Through all ages, men of all degrees and forms of religion have hoped at least for a continuance of life beyond its seeming extinction. Without such a hope, how could they have endured the existence they had? True, there are in our day men who profess unbelief in that future, and yet lead an enjoyable life, nor even say to themselves, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die, but instead say with nobleness, Let us do what good we may, for there are men to come after us. Of all things, let him who would be a Christian be fair to every man and every class of men. Before, however, I could be satisfied that I understood the mental condition of such, I should require a deeper insight than I possess in respect of other men. These however numerous they seem in our day would appear to be exceptions to the race no doubt there have always been those who from absorption in the present and its pleasures have not cared about the future have not troubled themselves with the thought of it some of them would rather not think of it because if there be such a future they cannot be easy concerning their part in it while others are simply occupied with the poor present a present grand indeed if it be the part of an endless whole but poor indeed if it stand alone. But here are thoughtful men who say, there is no more. Let us make the best of this. Nor is their notion of best contemptible, although in the eyes of some of us, to whom the only worth of being lies in the hope of becoming that which, at the rate of present progress, must take ages to be realised, it is poor. I will venture one or two words on the matter. Their ideal does not approach the ideal of Christianity, for this life even. Before I can tell whether their words are a true representation of themselves in relation to this future, I must know both their conscious and unconscious being. No wonder I should be loath to judge them. No poet of high rank, as far as I know, ever disbelieved in the future. He might fear that there was none, but that very fear is faith the greatest poet of the present day believes with ardour that it is not proven to the intellect i heartily admit but if it were true it was such as the intellect could not grasp for the understanding must be the offspring of the life in itself essential how should the intellect understand its own origin and nature it is too poor to grasp this question For the continuity of existence depends on the nature of existence, not upon external relations. If after death we should be conscious that we yet live, we shall even then, I think, be no more able to prove a further continuance of life than we can now prove our present being. It may be easier to believe, that will be all, but we constantly act upon grounds which we cannot prove and if we cannot feel so sure of life beyond the grave as of common everyday things, at least the want of proof ought neither to destroy our hope concerning it, nor prevent the action demanded by its bare possibility. But last, I do say this, that those men who, disbelieving in a future state, do yet live up to the conscience within them, however much lower the requirements of that conscience may be than those of a conscience which believes itself enlightened from the Lord who is that spirit, shall enter the other life in an immeasurably more enviable relation thereto than those who say, Lord, Lord, and do not do the things he says to them. It may seem strange that our Lord says so little about the life to come, as we call it, though in truth it is one life with the present, as the leaf and the blossom are one life. Even in argument with the Sadducees, he supports his side upon words accepted by them, and upon the nature of god but says nothing of the question from a human point of regard he seems always to have taken it for granted ever turning the minds of his scholars towards that which was deeper and lay at its root the life itself the oneness with god and his will upon which the continuous of our conscious being follows of a necessity and without which if the latter were possible it would be for human beings an utter evil When he speaks of the world beyond, it is as his father's house. He says there are many mansions there. He attempts in no way to explain. Man's own imagination, enlightened of the spirit of truth, and working with his experience and affections, was a far safer guide than his intellect with the best schooling which even our Lord could have given it. The memory of the poorest home of a fisherman on the shore of the Galilean lake where he as a child had spent his years of divine carelessness in his father's house, would, at the words of our Lord, my father's house, convey to Peter or James or John more truth concerning the many mansions than a revelation to their intellect, had it been possible, as clear as the apocalypse itself is obscure. When he said, I have overcome the world, he had overcome the cause of all doubt, the belief in outside appearances, and not in the living truth. He left it to his followers to say, from their own experience knowing the thing, not merely from the belief of his resurrection, He has conquered death in the grave. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? It is the inward life of truth that conquers the outward death of appearance, and nothing else, no revelation from without, could conquer it. these miracles of our lord are the nearest we come to news of any kind concerning i cannot say from the other world i accept of course our lord's own resurrection of that i shall yet speak as a miracle for miracle it was as certainly as any of our lord's whatever interpretation be put upon the word and i say the nearest to news we come because not one of those raised from the dead gives us at least an atom of information. Is it possible they may have told their friends something which has filtered down to us in any shape? I turn to the cases on record. There are only three. The day after he cured the servant of the centurion at Capernaum, Jesus went to Nain. And as they approached the gate, I cannot part the story from the lovely words in which it is told by St. Luke, there was a dead man carried out the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And much people of the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And he said unto her, Weep not. And he came and touched the bier, and they that bare her stood still. And he said, Young man, I say unto thee, Arise! And he that was dead sat up and began to speak. And he delivered him to his mother. In each of these cases, there is an especial fitness in the miracle. The youth was the only son of a widow. The daughter of Jairus was his one only daughter. Lazarus was the brother of two orphan sisters. I will not attempt, by any lingering over the simple details, to render the record more impressive. That lingering ought to be on the part of the reader of the narrative itself. Friends crowded around a loss. The centre of the gathering that was not. The sole presence, the hopeless sign of a vanished treasure, an open gulf, as it were, down which love and tears and sad memories went plunging in a soundless cataract. The weeping mother. The dead man born in the midst. They were going to the house of death, but life was between them and it, was walking to meet them, although they knew it not. A face of tender pity looks down on the mother. She heeds him not. He goes up to the bier and lays his hand on it. The bearers recognise authority and stand. A word and the dead sits up. A moment more, and he is in the arms of his mother. O mother, mother, wast thou more favoured than any other mothers? Or was it that, for the sake of all mothers as well as thyself, thou wast made the type of the universal mother with the dead son, the raising of him but a foretaste of the one universal bliss of mothers with dead sons? That thou wert an exception would have ill met thy need for thy motherhood could not be justified in thyself alone. It could not have its rights save on grounds universal. Thy motherhood was common to all thy sisters. To have helped thee by exceptional favour would not have been to acknowledge thy motherhood. That thou must go mourning still, even with thy restored son in its bosom, for its claims are universal, or they are not. Here wast indeed a chosen one, but that thou mightest show to all the last fate of the mourning mother, for in God's dealings there are no exceptions. His laws are universal, as he is infinite. Jesus wrought no new thing, only the works of the Father. What matters it that the dead come not back to us? if we go to them. What matters it, said I, it is tenfold better. Dear as home is, he who loves it best must know that what he calls home is not home. It is but a shadow of home. It is but the open porch of home, where all the winds of the world rave by turns, and the glowing fire of the true home casts lovely gleams from within. Certainly this mother did not thus lose her son again. Doubtless, next, she died first, knowing then at last that she had only to wait. The dead must have their sorrow too, but when they find it is well with them, they can sit and wait by the mouth of the coming stream, better than those can wait who see the going stream bear their loves down to the ocean of the unknown. The dead sit by the river mouths of time, the living mourn upon its higher banks but for the joy of the mother we cannot conceive it no mother even who has lost her son and hopes one blessed day to find him again can conceive of her gladness had it all been a dream a dream surely in this sense that the final which alone in the full sense is god's will must ever cast the look of a dream over all that has gone before When we last awake, we shall know that we dreamed. Every honest judgment, feeling, hope, desire will show itself a dream, with this difference from some dreams, that the waking is the more lovely, that nothing is lost but everything gained in the full blaze of restored completeness. How triumphant would this mother die when her turn came! And how calmly would the restored son go about the duties of the world? Footnote 11. Those who can take the trouble and are capable of understanding it will do well to study Robert Browning's epistle of an Arab physician. He got up and began to speak. It is vain to look into that which God has hidden, for surely it is by no chance that we are left thus in the dark. He began to speak. Why does not the evangelist go on to give us some hint of what he said? Would not the hearts of mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, wives, children, husbands, who shall say where the divine madness of love will cease, grandfathers, grandmothers, themselves with flickering flame, yes, grandchildren, weeping over the loss of the beloved grey head, and the tremendously gentle voice? Would not all of these have blessed God for St. Luke's record of what the son of the widow said? For my part, I thank God he was silent. When I think of the pictures of heaven drawn from the attempt of prophecy to utter its visions in the poor forms of the glory of earth, I see it better that we should walk by faith and not by a fancied sight. I judge that the region beyond is so different from ours, so comprising in one surpassing excellence all the good of ours, that any attempt of the had-been-dead to describe it would have resulted in the most wretched of misconceptions. Such might please the lower conditions of Christian development, but so much the worse, for they could not fail to obstruct its further growth. It is well that St. Luke is silent or that the mother and the friends who stood by the bier heard the words of the returning spirit only as the babble of a child from which they could draw no definite meaning and to which they could only respond by caresses the story of the daughter of jairus is recorded briefly by st matthew more fully by st luke most fully by st mark one of the rulers of the synagogue at capernaum falls at the feet of our lord saying his little daughter is at the point of death. She was about twelve years of age. He begs the Lord to lay his hands on her that she might live. Our Lord goes with him, followed by many people. On his way to restore the child, he is arrested by a touch. He makes no haste to outstrip death. We can imagine the impatience of the father when the Lord stood and asked who had touched him. What did that matter? His daughter was dying. Death would not wait. But the woman's heart and soul must not be passed by. The father, with the only daughter, must yet wait a little. The will of God cannot be outstripped. While he yet spake, there came from the ruler of the synagogue's house certain which said, Thy daughter is dead. Why troublest thou the master any farther? Ah, I thought so. There it is. Death has won the race, we may suppose the father to say, bitterly within himself. But Jesus, while he tried the faith of men, never tried it without feeding its strength. With the trial, he always gives the way of escape. As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, not leaving it to work its agony of despair first, he saith unto the ruler of the synagogue, Be not afraid, only believe. They are such simple words commonplace in the ears of those who have heard them often and heeded them little but containing much more for this man's peace than all the consolations of philosophy than all the enforcements of morality yea even than the raising of his daughter itself to arouse the higher the hopeful the trusting nature of a man To cause him to look up into the unknown region of mysterious possibilities, the god so poorly known, is to do infinitely more for a man than to remove the pressure of the direst evil without it. I will go further. To arouse the hope that there may be a god with a heart like our own is more for the humanity in us than to produce the absolute conviction that there is a being who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. Jesus is the express image of God's substance, and in him we know the heart of God. To nourish faith in himself was the best thing he could do for the man. We hear no word from the ruler further. If he answered not our Lord in words, it is no wonder. The compressed lip and the uplifted eye would say more than any words to the heart of the Saviour. Now it would appear that he stopped the crowd and would let them go no further. They could not all see, and he did not wish them to see. It was not good for men to see too many miracles. They would feast their eyes and then cease to wonder or think. The miracle, which would be all, and quite dissociated from religion with many of them, would cease to be wonderful, would become a common thing with most. Yea, some would cease to believe it had been. They would say she did sleep, after all. She was not dead. A wonder is a poor thing for faith, after all, and the miracle could only be a wonder in the eyes of those who had not prayed for it, and could not give thanks for it, who did not feel that in it they were partakers of the love of God. Jesus must have hated anything like display, God's greatest work has never been done in crowds, but in closets. And when it works out from thence, it is not upon crowds, but upon individuals. A crowd is not a divine thing. It is not a body. Its atoms are not members one of another. A crowd is a chaos over which the Spirit of God has yet to move, ere each retires to his place to begin his harmonious work and unite with all the rest, in the organized chorus of the human creation. The crowd must be dispersed, that the church may be found. The relation of the crowd to the miracle is rightly reflected in what came to the friends of the house. To them, weeping and wailing greatly, after the eastern fashion, he said when he entered, Why make ye this ado and weep? The damsel is not dead, but sleepeth. They laughed him to scorn. He put them all out. But what did our Lord mean by those words, the damsel is not dead but sleepeth? Not certainly that, as we regard the difference between death and sleep, his words were to be taken literally. Not that she was only in a state of coma or lethargy. Not even that it was a state of suspended animation, as in catalepsy. For the whole narrative evidently intends us to believe that she was dead, after the fashion we call death. That this was not to be dead after the fashion our Lord called death is a blessed and lovely fact. Neither can it mean that she was not dead as others, in that he was going to wake her so soon, for they did not know that, and therefore it could give no ground for the expostulation, Why make ye this ado and weep? Nor yet. Could it come only from the fact that, to his eyes, death and sleep were so alike, the one needing the power of God for awaking just as much as the other? True, they must be more alike in his eyes than even in the eyes of the many poets who have written of death and his brother's sleep. But he sees the differences nonetheless clearly, and how they look to us, and his knowledge could be no reason for approaching our ignorance. The explanation seems to be large and simple. These people professed to believe in a resurrection of the dead and did believe after some feeble fashion. They were not Sadducees, for they were the friends of a ruler of the synagogue. Our Lord did not bring the news of resurrection to the world that had been believed in various degrees by all peoples and nations from the first. The resurrection he taught was a far deeper thing the resurrection from dead works, to serve the living and true God. But as with the greater number even of Christians, although it was part of their creed, and had some influence upon their moral and spiritual condition, their practical faith in the resurrection of the body was a poor affair. In the moment of loss and grief, they thought little about it. They lived then in the present almost alone, They were not saved by hope. The reproach, therefore, of our Lord was simply that they did not take from their own creed the consolation they ought. If the child was one day to be restored to them, then she was not dead, as their tears and lamentations would imply. Any one of themselves who believed in God and the prophets might have stood up and said, Mourners, why make such a do? The maid is not dead, but sleepeth. You shall again clasp her to your bosom. Hope and fear not, only believe. It was in this sense, I think, that our Lord spoke. But it may not at first appear how much grander the miracle itself appears in the light of this simple interpretation of the Master's words. The sequel stands in the same relation to the words as if, turning into the death-chamber and bringing the maid out by the hand, he had said to them, See! I told you she was not dead but sleeping. The words apply to all death, just as much as to that in which this girl lay. The Lord brings his assurance, his knowledge of what we do not know, to feed our feeble faith. It is as if he told us that our notion of death is all wrong, that there is no such thing as we think it, that we should be nearer the truth if we denied it altogether and gave to what we now call death the name of sleep, for it is but a passing appearance, and no right cause of such misery as we manifest in its presence. I think it was from this word of our Lord, and from the same utterance in the case of Lazarus, that St. Paul so often uses the word sleep, for die and for death. Indeed the notion of death, as we feel it, seems to have vanished entirely from St. Paul's mind. He speaks of things so in a continuity, not even referring to the change, not even saying before death or after death, as if death made no atom of difference in the progress of holy events, the divine history of the individual and of the race altogether. In a word, when he raised the dead, the Son did neither more nor less, nor other than the work of the Father, what he is always doing. He only made it manifest a little sooner to the eyes and hearts of men. But they to whom he spoke laughed him to scorn. They knew she was dead, and their unfaithfulness blinded their hearts to what he meant. They were unfit to behold the proof of what he had said. Such as they, in such mood, could gather from it no benefit. A faithful heart alone is capable of understanding the proof of the truest things. It is faith towards God which alone can lay hold of any of his facts. There is a foregoing fitness. Therefore he put them all out. But the father and mother, whose love and sorrow made them more easily persuaded of mighty things, more accessible to holy influences, and the three disciples, whose faith rendered them fit to behold otherwise dangerous wonders, he took with them into the chamber where the damsel lay, dead towards men, sleeping towards God. Dead as she was, she only slept. "'Damsel, I say unto thee, arise!' And her spirit came again, and straightway the damsel arose and walked, and he commanded to give her meat. For in the joy of her restoration, they might forget that the more complete the health of a worn and exhausted body, the more needful was food, food which, in all its commonness, might support the miracle. For not only did it follow by the next word to that which had wrought the miracle, but it worked in perfect harmony with the law which took shape in this resurrection, and in its relations to the human being involved, no less marvel lay than in the miracle itself. The raising of the dead and the feeding of the living are both and equally divine, therefore in utter harmony. And we do not any more understand the power in the body which takes to itself that food than we understand the power going out from Jesus to make this girl's body again capable of employing its ministrations. They are both of one and must be perfect in harmony, the one as much the outcome of law as the other. He charges the parents to be silent. It may be for his sake, who did not want to be made a mere wonder of, but more probably for their sakes, that the holy thing might not evaporate in speech, or be defiled with foolish talk and the glorification of self-importance in those for whom a mighty wonder had been done, but that in silence the seed might take root in their hearts and bring forth living fruit in humility and uprightness and faith. End of chapter 8, part 1